questions back there on the back table to the right. You can also uh, check out the bulletin. I believe the bulletin board's got info. Or grab Kelly after church, and she'll point you in the right direction. All right, we're going to be in Esther, Esther chapters 8, chapters 8, 9, and 10 this morning. Lord willing, time willing, we will finish up the book of Esther today. I tell you, I love this book. I've been wanting to teach this book for years out here and, and never worked out to do, and so finally got a chance to do it. And what a wonderful, neat book it is. As we've said numerous times out here, the key verse in the book of Esther is verse 14 of chapter 4. That who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We use this phrase a lot in the book of Esther, a God thing or a divine appointment or a God appointment, where the Lord is working something out behind the scenes that you don't realize, I don't realize, he's working this out, and it all comes together and you step back and say, wow, Lord, now I see it. Remember, throughout the book of Esther, through ten chapters, the word, the name of God is never mentioned, which is a picture of God sometimes doing things, once again, that you don't see and I don't see. And we have to trust in faith that he's working. And one of the hardest things to do is to have those Esther moments of, Lord, what's going on? Are you hearing my prayers? Are you answering my prayers? Are you doing anything? And that's where we're at here in the book of Esther. So let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into this. Heavenly Father, excited to be here. And Lord, um, excited to hear what you have to say, and I pray it just blesses us and takes us deeper in you in all ways. And Lord, um, as always, we pray for our men and women serving in the field. We pray for our nation for wisdom. And Lord, just thank you for just the time to come together and celebrate you. And Lord, we pray for the kids in the back. Bless them, their teachers. A lot of activity, a lot of fun back there in their name. Amen. Alrighty, Esther, chapter 8. Now, quick review, if you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, in chapters 1 and 2, Esther becomes queen. That's a pretty big deal. She's just a young Jewish gal. Next thing you know, she's queen of the Persian kingdom. That was a God thing. God was moving her into a place where he wanted her to be. Chapters 3 and 4 were introduced to Haman, one of the bad guys of the Old Testament. Haman had this plot that he wanted to have all the Jews killed. Well, now you see why God moved Esther into the position of being queen, because now this plot comes to surface that all the Jews were going to be killed, and so now Esther is in a position to do something about it. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, Haman's plot is discovered. Haman is killed. Esther is revealed, and therefore the Jews are supposedly saved. Well, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are what I call mop-up chapters, because there's still this issue of the Jews being killed. See, Haman's plot, if you remember correctly, was that he picked a day, it was in the 12th month, the Jewish candle, it would have been February, March of our time, and that during that 12th month they picked a certain day where it was okay to go kill a Jew. You see the Jew, you just go kill him. That's what it was. Haman had such a, a hatred, and when we went over that study, we used the word hellish hate. Haman had such a hellish hate for God's people that he wanted them utterly destroyed. Well, now here in chapters 8, 9, and 10, this decree is still out there. The Jews are still going to be attacked. Even though Haman is destroyed, what do we do about that? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, On that day King Azarias gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, you've got to remember Mordecai. Mordecai was Esther's uncle. He's the one that raised Esther. Now, it's important to know, because Mordecai we've talked about a lot. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai discovers a plot where King Azarius is going to be killed. So Mordecai goes and tells of the plot. And what happens to Mordecai? Nothing. First time we introduced to Mordecai, we talked about, haven't you ever been in that position? You're serving the Lord. You're doing what's good. And what do you get for it? Nothing. You're loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You're respecting, honor, and submitting to your husband. What do you get out of it? Nothing. You're cleaning the church when no one sees. You're serving in the ministry that no one wants to do. What do you get out of it? Nothing. And we talked about how with Mordecai, we serve and obey God because it's the right thing to do, not to get the rewards and the pat on the back. So now, a little bit later on, we see Mordecai get honored in chapter 6. And we talked about how 
God does see. He does respond. He does hear. He knows when we're going through difficult times. And he still keeps track of it, even though no one else may see. But God still sees. Now, the problem is we sit here and we look at this. And let's just be honest. This is what we think. I'm not getting the attention I deserve. I'm not getting the credit I deserve. You know what? People come into my office, fill in the blank. They're having a problem at work. They're having a problem in their marriage. You name it. I'm having a hard time with my husband. I'm having a hard time with wife. I'm having a hard time with this coworker. Well, you know what God wants you to do? Husbands, he wants you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, he wants you to respect, honor, submit. That coworker, God says he wants you to be nice to him, to love them. So you know what? They say, okay, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go try that. I'm going I'm to hold my tongue and not say anything. I'm not going to respond in the flesh. I'm going to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. They come back about two weeks later. I've tried for two weeks and nothing's changed. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything and nothing's changed. It's still the right thing to do even if the changes aren't happening that you want to see happen. I don't know how many times I tell people in marriage counseling, you do the right thing because it is the right thing. Not to get something out of your spouse. You're nice to that coworker who's a jerk because... God says you're supposed to love the unlovables. Those are the right things to do. But so often it was like, what do I get out of it? Don't push it. Trust and wait for God to see what's going on for his timing, and he takes care of it. He will honor you and lift you up in due time. Two verses that I want to share with you, and you don't need to turn there, but there are wonderful, wonderful verses on this. If you're taking notes, just write them down, please. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Then the book of James 4, verse 10, James 4, 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God says, I see, I know, I know the sacrifices you're making. I see what's going on. I see you holding your time. I see you serving when no one else notices. He goes, I see these things, and I will honor you in due time. He goes, trust me. See, but Matthew chapter 6 says, we can also get the praise from men. I'm not saying it's wrong to tell people good job. I'm just not saying it's wrong to send a thank you and pat somebody on the back. It's a heart issue. If your heart issue is, I want the attention of, look what I did, God says in Matthew chapter 6, he goes, fine, take the reward. Take the pat on the back. Let everybody celebrate James Day or whatever you want to call it. He goes, but for eternity, you're missing out on rewards. Because God says, I just want you to serve and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mordecai is an example of doing the right thing without looking for reward, without looking for honor, without looking for the pat on the back. He did the right thing, and God lifted him up in due time. You know how hard that is to do? It is so difficult to do the right thing when you feel you're out there flying solo, when you feel like you're the only one that's doing it. You're the only one serving. You're the only one trying in this marriage. You're the only one trying to be the good guy at work. It's tough. I heard a story about this this week, and I think it's pretty neat, and I want to share it with you. It says an out-of-towner drove his car into a ditch in the countryside. Luckily, a farmer came to help him with his big, strong horse named Buddy. He hitched Buddy up to the car and he yelled, pull, Nellie, pull. But he didn't move. Then the farmer hollered, pull, Buster, pull. But he didn't budge. Once more, the farmer commanded, pull, Coco, pull. Nothing. Then the farmer casually said, pull, Buddy, pull. And the horse easily dragged the car out of the ditch. The curious motorist asked the farmer why he called his horse by the wrong name three different times. The farmer said, oh, Buddy's blind. And if he thought he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't even try. Now... <laughs> Is that not example of life? I will work on the marriage when she works on the marriage. I'll work on the marriage when he works on the marriage. I'll be nice to you when you're nice to me. God says just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mordecai is an example of that. And we see other examples throughout the Bible. David. David was anointed king over Israel, then had spears thrown at him. Had to go run and hide in the caves. Jesus is the greatest example of this. Jesus, God. 
came down in the form of man and no one cared. Born in a manger. And what does it say in the book of Philippians chapter 2? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. His honor is coming due. We have to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And we have to trust that God sees that, honors that, and his time frame. Mordecai's an example of that. Let's move on here. Well, in verses 3 through 14, Esther goes to the king. And she says, hey, there's this law out there. Then the 12th month, middle of the month, all the Jews are going to be attacked and killed. Haman made that law that the Jews can be attacked and killed, and therefore they can be plundered. She goes, we need to do something about this. So the king says, well, Persian law, I can't revoke the law, he says. He goes, but you can make a new law. And that's what they do, is they make a new law, verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. The original law was, hey, free day, take out the Jews, plunder them. Now the king makes a law that says, you know what, the Jews, you can fight back. Now I looked at this, and I thought, isn't that kind of silly? Why can't the king just cancel the law? Why can't he just say, okay, that law is canceled? Well, Persian government rules were you can't cancel the law. That's a law. That's why, example, when David was thrown in the lion's den, even though the king knew David, excuse me, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, even though the king knew Daniel was innocent, that's why the king went and did that candlelight vigil around the, the lion's den. He knew Daniel was right. He knew Daniel was innocent, but the law said he has to be thrown in the lion's den. The king couldn't revoke the law. And I looked at this and I thought, once again, how silly is that? Just revoke the law. It's not the way it works. And I started thinking... Isn't that a picture of sin? Don't you wish God could just revoke sin? I mean, he's God. Have you ever not thought like this? Maybe you guys are more spiritual than me. I sometimes think, Lord, why can't you just revoke sin? Why can't you just make it go away? You had to do the whole Jesus thing. Why can't you just make it go away? We had a situation at the Irvin house, I believe it was on Friday. Three boys are sitting on the bar stools getting ready for lunch. All of a sudden, I hear Judah scream. Judah, what's wrong? Kenan pinched me. Okay. So Judah comes out, and Judah didn't have a shirt on, and he's got three big red welts on the back of his back. So Kenan pinched him. Kenan, come here. Kenan comes here. Kenan, did you pinch him? No. And Kenan goes, he pinched me. Kenan, where did he pinch you? Kenan looks around, looks around, finally picks his index finger. You know, that's, that's where he pinched me. Kenan was having a bad day. He was having a real bad day, and he wasn't feeling good. I believe that was the day he woke up and he was sick. It was just not a good day. So I get the wooden spoon out. So, because judgment has to happen. You know, we go through the rules in Ephesians 4.32. It's kind of funny. When anytime Kenan quotes a verse, he, Ephesians 4.32, he knows Ephesians 4.32 is be kind to one another. So he says, be kind to everybody. But for some reason, when Kenan quotes a verse, he always, the other verse they know is Psalm 101, which is shout to the Lord. Kenan always combines them. Be kind to everybody. Shout to the Lord. He's kind of... <laughs> he's, my, he's my future charismatic. You know, he's just... Anyway... So be kind to everybody. He knows that. I, I believe he's truly sorry. He's truly heartbroken over this. And so I said, Kenan, what's grace and mercy? And if you ask any of my boys what grace and mercy is, they define grace and mercy as we don't get spanked. I mean, that's, that's, that's how they define grace and mercy is we don't get spanked. So I said, Kenan, I'm going to give you grace and mercy today, okay? We, we prayed about it. Go back and apologize to your brother, etc. And boom, it's over. It's done. Sin just disappeared. There's no punishment. It just disappeared, right? Now, I can do that. Why can't God just make sin disappear? Problem is, I'm not just. The Bible describes God as just. Psalm 711, God is a just judge. He goes, I can't let it go. Come on, God. I'm sorry. They're sorry. We said things that shouldn't be said. Can we just let it go? 
God says, no, part of being fair and just is sin can't be swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with. It has to be taken care of. And so, therefore, Jesus has to die. He's a just judge. It has to be taken care of. Now, we look at this and we say, Lord, can't you just let it go? You know, here's the thing, though. If God is not fair and just on this issue, that means he can bend on other issues. What would happen one day if God just woke up and said, you know, James, you've been, you've been saved for 18 years and I'm just not feeling it anymore. You're out. Lord, what did I do? Not nothing. I just, you're out. Lord, don't I love you with all my heart? Haven't I accepted you as my Lord and Savior? Haven't I just believed in faith? He goes, yeah, you've done all that, but I'm, I'm just not feeling it. God is a fair, just God. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I have salvation. We talked about that term reconciliation Wednesday night. The debt has been paid through Christ. So therefore, this Persian law just couldn't be revoked. It has to be enforced. Just like your sin, my sin just can't be ignored. It has to be taken care of. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For 34 years I've walked on this earth and I've built up a huge debt of sin. God just can't let it go. Somebody has to pay that debt. And so that's why we have 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we just talked about Wednesday. He that knew no sin became sin for us. I'm a sinner. Christ became sin for me. He paid my debt. I created the mess. God cleaned it up. God is just. He can't forget sin. He can't let sin go. It's taken care of through Christ on the cross. Persian law just can't change it. But you can create something new. And that's what they do in verse 11. As this new law comes that you can fight back. And what's the response to this? Verse 15. So Mordecai, now second in charge, went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple in the city of Shushan, that's the capital of the Persian Empire, rejoiced and it was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor in every province and city wherever the king's command and decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. They get the right to fight back and so what's the response? Look at this wording. Verse 15, gladness, rejoiced, glad. Verse 16, light, gladness, joy. Verse 17, joy, gladness, feast. Why? Because now there was an answer to their problem that they couldn't do anything about. They were facing death in the eyes. They weren't allowed to fight back. They were just going to be systematically slaughtered. Now they can fight back. Now they got a fighting chance. Isn't that a picture of Christ? Because of my sin problem, Jesus came and died on the cross. I got a fighting chance now through him. The problem has been dealt with. And so therefore, since Jesus died on the cross for me, I have joy, gladness, lightness, whatever, a feast. It's an exciting thing because God has given me a solution to my sin problem of Christ. And just as the Jews now have a solution, they can fight back. They're rejoicing. Do you realize the problem is still there? There is still a battle coming. It's not that the law has been revoked. They're just rejoicing because now they got a fighting chance. See, this is what happens in the world we live in today. The problem isn't dealt with. I still sin, but i got a fighting chance through forgiveness of Christ Jesus. I have a fighting chance because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and so therefore I can have that relationship with him. There is a chance through salvation through the Lord. Come back to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would turn there. See, there's still a battle, but we have Hope. The Jews still have a battle coming, but now they have hope. They can fight. You and I live in a fallen world, but we have hope. We can still fight. First Peter chapter 1, please. See, the question comes up. The Jews still have this battle coming, but they're rejoicing. The question comes up that we have to ask ourselves is, how do you handle adversity? See, I know what type of Christian we all are when everything's good. 
You get the good report from the doctor. It's easy to praise the Lord. When the marriage is going good, easy to praise the Lord. When the kids, kids are doing good, easy to praise the Lord. You get that promotion, you get that new job, easy to praise the Lord. The bills are taken care of, easy to praise the Lord. We all find it very easy to be Christians when everything falls into place. What happens when there is adversity? That's when your true Christianity comes out. I've told you before that I know a lot of what I call roller coaster Christians. When things are going good, they're on the hill, it's great, they're wonderful, everything's great. Praise God. Where can I serve? What can I do? Things go down, they go downhill. Why pray? Why go to church? Why do anything? Nothing ever changes. doesn't matter. Oh, but now they're back up again because God's good. I tell you, I hate roller coasters. They make me nauseous. To be quite honest, sometimes watching roller coaster Christians, they make me a little nauseous too. makes me nauseous when I'm a roller coaster Christian. The ups and the downs, the ups and the downs. God says whatever you're facing in life, there's joy and strength. Look here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy and expressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, Peter is saying, in the midst of the trial, you still rejoice. You know how hard it is to rejoice in a trial? Some of you came in today and you're carrying an emotional burden, a physical burden, a spiritual burden. It was a struggle just to get in here this morning. Now I'm telling you to rejoice. I'm grieved, verse 6. I have trials, verse 6. No one ever said trials are fun. But do you realize the trials of verse 6 are only for a little while? A little while. I've been struggling with this for months. I've been struggling with this for years. I, I, I have a diagnosis that I'm going to carry to the day of my death. You're telling me that's a little while? In the whole scheme of eternity, it's a little while. Now in your lifetime... It seems like an eternity. But in the whole scheme of an eternity, whatever you're facing right now is just for a little while. And God says whatever you're facing right now, the way you react, verse 7, shows me your faith. Can you come out of this shining? See, Job said in Job 23, he goes, I will come out of this tested like gold. He goes, I'll come out of this trial better and stronger in my walk with the Lord. Verse 7, the trials you go through show us what your walk with God is is like. It doesn't mean you enjoy it. It doesn't mean you like it. It's a trial. You're grieved. It lasts for a while. He goes, but this trial reveals your heart. It's still a battle, but you have hope. What do I have hope in? What do you rejoice in? Verse 8, you rejoice with joy. Well, rejoice in what? Verse 9, the salvation of your souls. If you're saved, you always have something to rejoice about. You always do. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. No matter what you face on this earth, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, you have joy because you are saved in Christ. That is what gets you through. Last year, about this time, we're going through the book of Colossians, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but I believe it was in the spring of last year. We had um, Marlene Kreider get up and, and share her testimony. And I, and I love testimonies. I love testimonies. And a lot of the testimonies you hear are usually testimonies when everything is said and done. You know, I went through this really horrible trial, and God got me through it, and I want to give him the glory. And those are great testimonies. I don't want to put those testimonies down. That's a lot of testimonies you hear. Very rarely do you ever hear the testimony in the middle of the trial. But we had Marlene get up about a year ago, and what she said really made a difference and impacted people because people want to see somebody in the middle of the trial say, 
to God be the glory. When we put the um, sermons online, uh, the website that we use to put them online, they have this little uh, statistics area where you can see how many times they've been listened to and, you know, over the last seven days, 30 days, 90 days, whatever, lifetime listens, etc. And they also have this other little section where it tells you the, the top five ones that people like to download and listen to. And you know what the number one message that people wanted to download and listen to was Marlene Kreider's testimony. Because she got up in the middle of the trial, and her trial was that she stood there and she said, I'm having testing done right now to see if it's cancer. And it ended up being cancer, and she's going through chemo right now battling this cancer. Now, we don't want to elevate anybody over anybody else, but she got up in the middle of the fire and said, no matter what these tests show, no matter what happens, to God be the glory. That carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight. And so when you see somebody in the middle of the trial being tested by fire, verse 7, the genuineness of their faith comes out. I'm telling you, how do you handle adversity? How do you handle the bad day at work? How do you handle when the spouse snaps at you? How do you handle that coworker that's rude? How do you handle when life gets out of hand? How do you handle when you got that sickness that won't let go of you? How do you handle adversity? Because that shows us the faith that is really in you. And just as these Jews rejoiced, even though the battle was still coming, but they had hope. They could fight back. Well, you and I have hope in our relationship in Christ Jesus. That's what gives us hope in the middle of the trial. I'm not just saying a random little, oh, praise the Lord, everything's great. No, it's tough. It's hard. It's difficult. This is the toughest thing I've been through in my life. But God is my strength and he's getting me through it. To him be the glory. So what happens with this? Well, verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Now in the twelfth month, that is in the month of Adair, which is February, March for us, on the thirteenth day the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azarias to lay hands on those who had sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. It's an amazing passage there. I find verse 1 fascinating. The time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed, verse 1. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Well, you don't mess with God's people. Haven't we said that before? Genesis 12, I will bless those that bless you, I will curse those who curse you. You don't mess with God's people. The other verse that came to my mind about this was 2 Corinthians 12.10. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, Wherein I am weak, therefore I am strong. A lot of times in Christianity, we get a little case of what I call the I can'ts. I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't pray. I can't read my Bible. I, 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 can't, I can't be nice to that person. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't handle this anymore. God says when you're weak, you're strong. Well, I can't. Yeah, you can. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. See, that when you're weak, you're strong thing is we sometimes reach a point of such weakness where we do realize I can't. And then we finally stop in faith and say, Lord, since I can't, you can. Sometimes God says, I've been waiting for you to reach a point of I can't, so therefore I can step in and take care of it. But how often do we as Christians keep thinking, I can still do this. I, I can fix this problem. I can heal this marriage. I can fix this coworker. I can bring this person to Christ. I can save my kids. I can, I can, I can. God says you can. And there's a point of weakness where it's strength of where you stop and you say, Lord, you're right. I can't do this anymore. God, you have to do it for me. And God says, finally, you realize that. See, the Jews in their moment of weakness in verse 1 actually had 
strength. And where did their strength come from? Obviously from the Lord. But I love this little picture there. Look at verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword. Anytime I see the word sword mentioned, it always takes me back to God's word. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God says God's word is a sword to use as a weapon. Now, here in the book of Esther, a couple of chapters ago, we talked about the powerful weapon God gave us of fasting and prayer. But now he's talking about the power of the sword, God's word. And I know what people are thinking. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I get it. Let's move on. I got that point. If we got that point, why do we as Christians live and fight without God's word being the foundation of our lives? Why is it? If we truly believe that God's word is what gets us through, why is it that we go ahead and try to live the life apart from what God's word says is right and wrong? You know, when somebody comes in for counseling or they want to talk, one of the first things I give them, I give them scriptures. I got nothing to say, but God's word doesn't return void. But you know what? A lot of times I run until later, hey, did you get a chance to read those scriptures I gave you? No, been busy. Oh, guys, there's always time to find time to read God's word. Some of you are thinking, yeah, okay, I read the Bible. I get nothing out of it. I don't get it. I don't understand it, etc. You know, there's always reasons. I shouldn't say reasons. There's always excuses. Let's just be honest. God's word says it's sharp. It's powerful. It cuts to your heart. Why do we try to stay away from God's word? Because it hurts sometimes to be told we're wrong. That's why we don't like to get into God's word because God's word says, hey, I love you enough to tell you there's sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. I don't want to read those scriptures. Why? Subconsciously, it's going to tell me I'm wrong. I don't want to hear the pastor. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to talk to mom and dad. I don't want to talk to whoever. Because why? I know I'm wrong deep down inside. God's word cuts in a healing sort of way, though. And we just don't want to deal with it. Turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. I want to talk about an example of God's word. 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. To me, this is a really neat picture of the power of God's word. 2 Samuel 23, and let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 9. 2 Samuel 23, verse 9. And after him was Elziar, the son of Dodo, the Ohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistine until his hand was weary, his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only the thunder. We're introduced to Elziar, who, who had a great victory here with this sword. And I want to talk about this for a second. Elziar's name is really fascinating. Elziar's name means God has helped. God has helped. Isn't that a good name? God helped him with the sword. It's interesting. He's the son of Dodo. Verse 9 there, depending on how your Bible reads, mine actually spells a D-O-D-O. Does anybody know what the word Dodo means in the Bible? Small flightless bird. Oh, come on. I told the 8.30 that the 10 o'clock would laugh at that, at least. Small flight, the dodo bird. That's funny. I don't care what you guys think. I thought that joke was funny. Some of you are writing down small flightless bird. What a funny name. No, Elziar, God has helped. See, the thing is, I've been doing this now for, um, I've been teaching since Jim asked me to start Wednesday nights. This is 14 years. I'm used to bombs joking. Bombs, see? <laughs> that wasn't even planned. Oh, let's just give up right now and quit while we're ahead. God loves you. God bless you. I'll be here tomorrow. Um, I don't care if the, if the uh, jokes bomb anymore because I just, I just keep on trucking. Um, Elziar means God has helped. Now, isn't this kind of fascinating here? He's in the middle of the battle, and look what happens here in verse 9. Everybody retreats. Verse 10, his hand is weary. What does he do? He sticks to the sword. Now, let's just be honest. You're in a spot right now where you may be in an Elziar moment. Everybody's retreated. It's just you. No one at work cares anymore. You're the only one trying. No one's helping to serve in that ministry. You're the only one doing it. 
No one's signing up to help. You're the only one working in the marriage. No one else is trying. He's not trying. She's not trying. You're the only one trying to build a bridge with the people. They're not trying to build back. Everybody else has retreated. It's just you. And to be quite honest, verse 10, you're weary. You're tired of being the good guy. You're tired of being the one to try. You're tired of this. You're tired of that. You are weary. So what do you want to do? You want to drop the sword and give up. Well, Elziar, verse 10, he hangs under the sword so much that his hand starts to stick to it. Isn't that a beautiful picture of when you're tired and you want to retreat and you want to give up, you don't let go of God's word? Your hand sticks to the sword. First time I heard that point, it was John Corson was teaching it. That just hit me. I want to be that Christian whose hand sticks to the sword. I want to be that Christian that when somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm struggling with this, I don't know what to do. You know, I say, hey, hey, check out this passage here. God really blessed me with this. I bless you with this. I want to be the one that when that verse comes up, say, hey, I want to share the scripture with you because my hand sticks to the sword. I get tired. I want to retreat. I get weary. I want to give up. But I never want to let go of the sword. I want to keep swinging it. Don't give up. It amazes me how many times Christians try to fix their lives and their problems apart from God's word. Don't let go of the sword. It's fascinating. When Joshua took over as the leader of Israel, when God was giving him his marching orders, when he was taking over, God told Joshua in Joshua 1.8, he goes, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. God told Joshua, he goes, you want to be successful as a leader of Israel, the leader of millions of people? He goes, stick to the word. I tell you, you want your witness at work to be blessed? Stick to the word. You want a better relationship with your kids? Stick to the word. You want your marriage to be blessed? Stick to the word. You just want a deeper walk with Christ? Stick to the word. There's a blessing that comes out of being in God's word. Sometimes you want to retreat. Sometimes it's weary. But there's a blessing that comes out of it. Let's jump back to Esther now and finish this up. Well, in the rest of chapter 9 here, the day comes, the fight happens, and the Jews are victorious. Victorious to the point of even Haman's kills, kids are, are killed there. Take a look at um, verse 13. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, and according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Haman, the bad guy, not only loses his life in the previous chapters, now his sons are put to death too. I struggle with that. I, I, I struggle with this finding this balance of, does my sin affect my kids, my boys? And that verse really hit me because I see his sons being affected by his own sin. And really the answer is found, if you get time, I shouldn't say if you get time, I encourage you, make the time, go read Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 is one of the best chapters in the Bible on this because it starts out by saying, is this the way it works, God? The sins of the father are passed on to the sins of the son. My dad was a whatever fill in the blank, so that's what I'm going to be. My mom was a whatever fill in the blank, so that's what I'm going to be. No, it's not genetic there. It's your own behavior is chosen, chosen, I should say, by copying what you see other people do. You know, it's Mother's Day. Mother's Day probably brings one, two emotions in you. Either, hey, Lord, thankful for my mother. Proverbs 31, children rise up and call her blessed. Some of you may be my mother, my family. I came from the most dysfunctional of dysfunctional. Well, but you know what? The Bible also says you can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. You don't have to have the past control you. And Ezekiel 18 comes out and says, you know what? You had the worst father in the world. God says you can make choices to not be like him. You can be your own creation in Christ. The Bible also says, too, fathers, you may be the best father in the world. Your son has to make that choice themselves. So does my sin affect my kids? It can. If I come home and model bad behavior in front of them, they're going to want to copy what dad does. So I want to be a good witness to my boys. And also, too, if I go home with sin in my heart, I can see it taken out, taking it out on the kids. You know, I, the old story goes, and I don't even know where I first heard it, but the boss yells at the employee. 
So the employee goes home in a bad mood. As the employee gets home, he's mad, so he yells at his wife because he had a bad day. Well, now the wife's in a bad mood because she got yelled at. She didn't do anything wrong. So the kid comes in, and so the mom's upset the kid. So the mom yells at the kid. Kid didn't do anything wrong. The mom's just upset because the dad's upset because the boss is upset. Well, the kid's now upset, so he goes and kicks his dog. Dog runs out, runs into the boss walking home and bites him. It's this cycle of what happens. Now, let's just be honest. Fathers, husbands, you ever had a bad day at work and come home and you can't chew out the boss, so you chew out your spouse and kids. I've run into that. I've done that. Moms, maybe you had a stressful day, so husband comes home all happy. How are you happy? What I've been doing all day? That doesn't happen at my house, just to make sure everybody knows that. Whatever the point is, we have a tendency to do that. Haman sins... Sons suffered for Haman's sin. Parents, let's not let our kids suffer for stupid choices we make. Don't allow your sin to be passed on and affected by others because it's between you and the Lord. And Lord, help us to be the husbands, the fathers, the parents, the aunts, the uncles, whatever you are, grandmas, grandpas, whatever we are, we want to be the people that God has called us to be and not allow sin to control us. But you see that there. So what happens here now in verses 18 through 32 is the Jews have this amazing victory amazing victory and it was a god thing esther becomes queen she shouldn't have been queen mordecai just happens to overhear news that makes him honored in the king's eye haman's plot is discovered he's put to death the jews are about to be slaughtered but then god works it out that they can fight back and instead the jews annihilate those that were trying to annihilate them so what happens here in verses 18 through 32 is they start this feast this feast of purim which is still happens today still goes on today it's in the months of february and march of our calendar and they read the book of Esther. They give gifts uh, to each other there. Verse 22 is the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month, which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make the days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another, gifts to the poor. And they still do this today. They actually dress up like Ham, uh, Haman or Esther. Um, and it's kind of interesting when they read the story of Esther. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, everybody will make noise and boo. You know, it's just kind of this exciting time there. And it's neat that this is still remembered. I think that's important. Two verses to close up on this. Look at verse 28 first. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that the days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them shall not perish among their descendants. They start this feast. It still goes on today, thousands of years later, because they said, we don't want to forget this. If you remember when you were with me, when we went through the book of Joshua, one of the points that came on the book of Joshua was something called memorial stones. That any time the Jews had a great victory in the book of Joshua, they set up a memorial stone to remember what God has done. I think that's a great idea. How often do we spend weeks, if not months, maybe years praying for something? God answers us, and we're like, oh, Lord, thanks, and we move on. I never used to be a big fan of journaling. I never was a journaler type of guy, and now I've reached a point I love writing down what God has done. I want to remember that. Because I'm just going to be honest with you. It's just like the kid at birthday. He opens up one gift, tosses, oh, great, tosses aside, right to the next one. Don't we do that sometimes with our Lord and Savior? Lord, thank you, thank you. Now what? Let's do that. Let's have those memorial stones. Some way, somehow in your life, make note and some remembrance when God did something. So that way, let's just be honest. When the emotional times of the past want to come into your life and God, excuse me, the enemy wants to plant those seeds of prayer doesn't do anything, everything falls apart, nothing ever works, go back and read the answers to what God has given you. Those memorial stones, a remembrance. And some of you need that today. Because look at verse 22 one more time. How many of you come in today with sorrow? How many of you come in today with mourning? God says, I'll turn your sorrow to joy and your mourning to a holiday. Once again, 
How many of you here today, it was a struggle just to get here? Now, you may have put on a happy face, but the truth of the matter is you're hurting. You're hurting physically. You're hurting spiritually. You have doubts. You have questions. God's not hearing, not answering. I don't know. You feel empty inside. You're hurting in your marriage, in your relationships, your work, your kids. I don't know emotionally. And you have a lot of sorrow and you have a lot of mourning. Aren't you thankful that the book of Esther is here given to us to remind us God is working behind the scenes even when you don't see it? you realize how many answered prayers are sitting out here today? Because people took the time over weeks, months, and years to pray for you. And there's answered prayers right here, right now. Well, I don't see what God is doing. Isn't that the whole point of the book of Esther? Sometimes you don't see what God is doing. But do you trust that he's moving and working even when you don't see it? Just because God doesn't reveal the plan doesn't mean the plan isn't working. God is moving and working even when you don't see it. And he is working on turning your sorrow into joy or mourning into a holiday. Now the question comes up, are you willing to open up your heart to him and say, okay, God, I need your strength right now because I can't do this on my own? Are you willing to allow yourself to become weak so that way you can become strong? Are you willing to stick to the sword and cling to it? I tell you, if you're going through a tough time and you're like, okay, James, I want those passages, I want those verses, call me, text me, email me, grab me. I will give you passages that are encouragement. In fact, I'll probably tell you right now, if you come to me and you say I'm struggling, as soon as you say struggling, you know what I think of? Psalm 40. Some of you have probably said, yep, I actually had somebody, and I don't remember who it was, so if you're out there, I apologize. But someone said to me one time, they were going through a tough time, and they said, hey, I'm going through a tough time. I said, hey, have you read Psalm 40? And they said, yeah, that's the passage you gave me last time. <laughs> so I must, I must say it a lot, and I don't even realize it. Psalm 40. And then I said, well, have you read Psalm 40? Go to Psalm 37. After Psalm 37, say Psalm 23. After Psalm 23, Psalm 91. Psalms are like healing oil. It just, David went through so much, guys. I mean, he went through so much. And so when he's writing those Psalms, he's opening his heart of hurt and pain and saying, God, I need you. So if you're struggling, get into the Word. So often people say, well, I read it. Nothing changed. Sometimes it's like taking the medicine. As soon as you swallow it, you don't feel better, but it works. It works inside of you, and you've got to trust that God is moving and working even when you don't see it. If that's all you get out of the book of Esther, God is moving and working even when you don't see it. Keep praying. Hang in there. Don't give up. Cling to the sword. Glenn, if you want to come forward here for the final song.